0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
1: I'm Alan Alda and this is Clear and Vivid conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: And if that happens, it creates a a bubble of this new kind of space that we call a true vacuum, and the true vacuum bubble would expand at about the speed of light and engulf everything and change the physics within that bubble to physics that we cannot exist in our atoms would not hold together anymore, um, and it would just kind of destroy everything. And you wouldn't see it coming because it would happen at the speed of light. You wouldn't feel it either. Like, it it would happen so quickly that you wouldn't really notice. It would be real, real bad.
1: (laughs) That's astrophysicist Katie Mack. In her book, The End of Everything, she's combined her deep knowledge of the origin and evolution of the cosmos with a skill in communicating that's wonderfully clear and vivid. The result is an absorbing and often very funny account of what most of us might think of as the ultimate downer, the death of the universe. This is really going to be fun because your book is about the greatest catastrophe of all time, the <laughs> yes. end of everything, right?
2: Absolutely everything, yes.
1: Everything we, we can see and things we can't see, everything mm-hmm. there is, reality mm-hmm. goes away. Yeah. And, yep. and and thinking about this gives you joy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I wouldn't say it gives me joy. I would say that it's something that's that's so big and so overwhelming that the only thing you can do is laugh.
1: <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I actually I actually feel that way about it. Yeah. So how how do we know that the universe is everything we know the cosmos everything is going to end?
2: Well, we know that the universe had a beginning, or at least in the sense that there was something that the universe changed from that was extraordinarily different. We know that in the very early stages, the universe was hot and dense and full of plasma and and a totally different kind of environment than we live in now. And we know that it's been changing over time. And as we watch that evolution, it's clear that it can't stay in the sort of steady state of livability that the universe is in now. The universe is expanding. um, The matter is getting more diffuse. Radiation is getting more diffuse. And as that goes on, and as, you know, disorder increases, as the second law of thermodynamics tells us that order, you know, disorder increases in the future, there's, there's really no way to just pause everything and keep it stable. I mean, we actually know that the universe is already dying in the sense that we know that the progress of the formation of new stars is slowing down. There was yeah. a, a sort of peak, and it's it's been going down
1: for billions of years. I saw in the talk you gave that mm-hmm. 90% of all the stars that are going to be made... yeah have already been made.
2: Yeah, yeah, based on our understanding of how stars form and how they formed in the past, from now until the end of time, it's only the last sort of 10% or so of stars that will ever be formed.
1: And so How, how do we know that?
2: Well, we can see the the we can see distant galaxies that were formed earlier in the universe. We can see galaxies that exist in the past. From our perspective, by looking farther and farther away, we're looking farther back in time. And we can see that there was a sort of peak of star formation, you know, several billion years ago, where there was the most uh, formation of stars as, you know, gas was falling into galaxies and and, uh, causing these bursts of star formation as galaxies were colliding a lot and creating more stars. And now that the universe is getting more diffuse and galaxies are colliding less often and gas is sort of being used up by the stars that are already existing and and uh you know everything's kind of getting farther apart and, and aging uh, we can see that, that star formation has slowed down quite a lot and as we look into the future if the universe continues expanding uh, and the you know stars keep forming there's going to be less and less gas from which to form new stars in in the future
1: so we've talked on the show a couple of times about the expansion of the universe—that mm-hmm. the idea that galaxies are all moving away from one another. Mm-hmm. There was expansion of the universe at a at a higher rate at one point, wasn't there, during this yeah. period called inflation? Yeah, yeah. And then so, it didn't move quite as fast after that. So how do we know that this present expansion won't slow down too?
2: Well, I mean, we've we've looked at the expansion rate over the history uh, based on what we can see of, of distant galaxies. And, and we can see that the universe was slowing down in its expansion as the gravity of everything kind of put the brakes on on that expansion. But then a few billion years ago, something took over and made the expansion speed up. And whatever that something is that made the expansion speed up, we call it dark energy, but we don't really well, understand we, we it at all. We don't
1: know what the foot on the accelerator really is. No, no, we don't. So there are. I think dark energy plays a big part Mm. in the five main ways. In your wonderful book, you describe (laughs) the end of everything, which is the Mm -hmm. appropriate title of the book. (laughs) Yeah. And I think dark energy plays plays a big part in all of these main Mm -hmm. endings. Mm -hmm. The one that I thought that I was so smart to have figured out when I first heard about all this Mm -hmm. was the big crunch. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me... You throw a ball in the air, it comes back down. You make a bunch of stars and galaxies, they all pull in on each other and eventually they recollide, maybe start a new universe. How credible is that idea now?
2: Well, it it was definitely the favored hypothesis sort of in the 1960s when we knew that, you know, just for the reasons you say, you know, the expansion was happening, but we knew that all of the galaxies in the universe, all the matter in the universe should have gravity and should be countering that expansion. They should be kind of slowing it down and pulling back. And And for a long time, we thought that the gravity was going to win. But we didn't know for sure. So people were measuring the expansion speed and and trying to figure out if we're in a situation where it's like a ball where you throw the ball up in the air and it stops and comes down. Or maybe like if you threw a ball extraordinarily fast, it would, you know, sort of escape the earth and it would reach escape velocity and just keep going, you know, out into space. It would always be slowing down a little bit, but it would keep going. And that, that was a big debate sort of, you know, from the nineteen sixties until the nineteen nineties, which of these things was gonna happen? It was the universe gonna stop and recollapse or was it gonna keep expanding forever? And in the late nineteen nineties, scientists discovered that actually the expansion was speeding up. And so uh, that's like if you throw a ball in the air and it slows down for a little while and then just shoots off into space. Like something is something's happening <laughs> and the, the changing foot, the story the, completely. The
1: unknown foot on the accelerator. Exactly, exactly. So, so you think it's probably not the big crunch?
2: Yeah, probably not. Although there are a couple of caveats to that. Because we don't know what dark energy is, we don't know what it is that's making the universe expand faster. There's a chance that it could be something that changes over time and it could go from, you know, putting the foot on the accelerator to putting the foot on the brake. It could be something that changes the dynamics of the universe such that it could turn everything around, it could, you know, give us a totally different uh, story. One of the the ideas I talk about in the book is uh, cyclic universes where you could have some kind of recollapse and then a new universe come after that. And that wouldn't be exactly like the original big crunch scenario, but um, you could have something where, where there is some compression. So... It's not entirely clear because we don't know what dark energy is. It's kind of this wild card where, you know, we have an idea, we have some hypotheses for what it could do, and we know that currently it's making the universe expand faster, and so that leads us to believe it's not going to stop and recollapse, but we don't really know for sure what dark energy might do in the future.
1: So that's the second big Ending, main ending, which is dark energy expanding forever, mm-hmm. and our galaxy yeah. just gets lonely, and there's nothing, nothing in the sky.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a scenario where um, the universe expands and expands and expands, driven by this dark energy. And yeah, as you say, the, everything just gets lonelier. Everything gets more isolated, and there are there's no more gas falling in to form new stars, and everything kind of burns out, and the universe gets very dark and very cold, and that's uh, probably the the most sort of depressing of the possibilities, but also it would just take so very long to get to that point that it's, it's also in the sense that the most distant.
1: So there's something I don't understand about that. Actually, there's mm. a, a truckload of things I don't understand. Okay. But one of the main ones right now is mm-hmm. if dark energy is pulling all the galaxies apart, but everything within the galaxies is staying intact, mm-hmm. we seem to be happy in our galaxy. Our galaxy doesn't yeah. seem to need other galaxies. Why is that so lonely? It's. I, I would think it would be lonely if all we were, if the sky were really dark, but we'd still have mm-hmm. the Milky Way.
2: Well, stars don't live forever, and if we don't have, if we're really distant from other galaxies, if we're more and more isolated, we're just going to use up all the gas in our own galaxy by making the last few stars, essentially. Our, already, our galaxy doesn't have that much free gas in it to form new stars, In 100 billion years, you know, all of the other galaxies will be so far away, we won't be able to see them, and most of the stars in our own galaxy will be dead.
1: The one that's really violent Mm. is the idea that dark energy could rip everything apart in what what you call the big rip. Yeah. How does that work?
2: Well, that's that's kind of a worst-case scenario for dark energy. (laughs) So (laughs) our... um, Our our sort of standard assumption about dark energy is that it's something we call a cosmological constant. It's a term that Einstein wrote into his equations for how gravity works. It's something that would just mean that every little bit of space has a bit of stretchiness kind of built into it. So. You know, in the standard scenario, in the cosmological constant scenario, if you have you know a cubic meter of space, there's a certain amount of cosmological constant in there, a certain amount of dark energy in there. It's not going to increase over time. But in a in a case we call it phantom dark energy, the dark energy would get more uh, more. You'd get more dark energy within each little bit of space over time, and so that cubic meter of space would have more dark energy, and it would gets it would start pushing out more and more, and so you'd have a situation where within bound objects like galaxies or galaxy clusters or solar systems, the dark energy would build up and start pushing within those objects and start sort of stretching things out. So you would you would have, uh, you know, galaxies losing their stars as the as the space stretches out within the galaxy and, and sort of pulls the stars away from the galaxy. You'd have, you know, planets being pulled away from their stars. You'd have uh, eventually... The planets and and the suns, you know, the stars would be sort of exploded from within from this this expansion that's happening within them from the the space itself. And then over time, you'd get to a point where it would just tear apart everything. the 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 expansion would get so powerful that it would tear apart, you know, molecules and atoms and nuclei and and just rip apart the fabric of space.
1: <laughs> so I'm beginning to see why people have feelings about this. <laughs> yes, but I guess it's not a bad time to mention that this would probably all happen trillions of years in the future hundreds of billions
2: first of all theorists don't like this idea very much there are certain energy conditions in the theory that are violated if you have a big rip and so it's not something that that fits well with most theories but even if it's even if it's there like we can we can put constraints we can say how long is like the soonest the big rip could happen, consistent with the current data, consistent with our current observations. And we get to like 200 billion years. So that's after the time when the universe is already dark and all the stars are dying and, you know, there's nothing really left. Uh, so that's, that's a very long time in the future. Um, so it's not something to, even if even if dark energy could rip the universe apart, it would be, be so far in the future that we probably don't need to worry about it.
1: So if people aren't nervous now, this will probably get them nervous. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Higgs particle, which we were so happy mm-hmm. to have found yeah. in 2012, because yeah. it helped everything be what it is. It gave mass mm-hmm. to everything. Now it's associated in this theory with the quantum bubble of death, <laughs> which is yeah. a, a great yeah. name for it, which, which would, could strike at any moment, Right.
2: Technically, yes. <laughs> technically, <laughs> I mean, I have to say that because people do. I get emails. People get really scared of this <laughs> of this possibility, of, uh, I vacuum decay, um, and and I don't think it's something we should worry about. But that is not to say that it, it can't technically happen at any moment. So, <laughs> um, the the way this one works, it's it's really about the Higgs field. So the Higgs boson is an excitation of the Higgs field. So the Higgs field is this energy field that's throughout all of space and the what the Higgs field is doing essentially it kind of sets the the Conditions for how physics works in our universe. Okay, so there was a time in the very very early universe when the Higgs field had a different value. So this this energy field had kind of a different value, and when that was the case, w- there were different laws of nature. The particles that existed were different. The forces of nature that existed were different. We didn't have uh, protons and electrons and quarks and stuff like that. Uh, particles didn't have mass. It was a very different situation, and then something changed. The Higgs field changed. It's called the Higgs mechanism. And that set up, you know, electrons and quarks and then the, the you know, strong force and the weak force and the electromagnetic force. It set up all the conditions for the way that physics works in our universe. And so that allowed atoms to form and, you know, molecules and, you know, electromagnetism and, and matter was able to form when that Higgs field changed. The problem is that, Based on our kind of current understanding, based on what we've measured of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider, it looks like it's possible that the Higgs field could change again.
1: And change all of physics.
2: And change all the physics. So and the
1: physics that give us the chance to be alive and have yep, planetary yep. systems would yes. be null and void.
2: <laughs> exactly. Your yeah, warranty would... has run out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our our atoms would not hold together anymore. We would not be coherent matter. It would be real, real bad. <laughs> so um, we don't want that to happen. And uh, but there's
1: nothing we can do.
2: <laughs> but there's but if it were to happen, yeah, there would be nothing we could do. What would happen? The way it would go is that somewhere in the universe, at some point, the Higgs field would undergo a transition. It's actually a quantum tunneling transition, which is a sort of random event that can happen with quantum mechanics where, well, we usually think of quantum tunneling as like a particle is on one side of a wall and suddenly it appears on the other side of a wall. That's just a thing that can happen in quantum mechanics. A similar thing happens with Higgs field. It's at one value and suddenly it's at another value. And if that happens, it creates a, a bubble of this new kind of space that we call a true vacuum. And the true vacuum bubble would expand at about the speed of light and engulf everything and change the physics within that bubble to physics that we cannot exist in. Um, And it would just kind of destroy everything. And you wouldn't see it coming because it would happen at the speed of light. And, you know, I mean, you wouldn't feel it either. Like, it it would happen so quickly that you wouldn't really notice. Um, There's, you know, there would be no kind of violent aftermath. It would just, you know, erase the universe, essentially.
1: Isn't this the... um... The particular death of the universe that your professor told you about one evening when you when you were gathered with other students in his house?
2: Yeah, yeah. So there was, yeah, there was a time I remember very vividly when I was an undergraduate and I was, um, they had this. This uh, class, where we'd kind of go for dessert nights at the at the different professors' houses, and they'd talk to us about their careers and about academia and about you know being a physicist, and um, and it was you know it was it was a nice pleasant thing. But one of the professors, uh, when he was you know giving his little dessert night talk. You know, he's sitting there uh, in the front of the room with his little three-year-old daughter on his lap, and he's talking about how, you know, well, all this stuff happened in the very early universe, and there was inflation and, and this transition, and that could happen again, we wouldn't know. <laughs> and, just, and, and I was just looking at him like, how can you say this? <laughs>
1: With your little girl on your lap.
2: Yeah, yeah, and he's just kind of smiling, like, yeah, we don't, we don't know what, ha- why that happened. We, we, it could happen again.
1: <laughs> what, what went through your mind that, at that moment, and later, and as you thought about it?
2: I, I mean, I think that that was the first moment when I really appreciated the power of the universe and the, and the forces, the, the sort of extreme forces that exist that that can change the nature of space. You know, change the nature of matter and the fact that there there are these physical transitions that we we read about we calculate as physicists we you know write down equations talking about the higgs mechanism or the process of inflation or whatever but that actually those things actually happened you know the 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 nature of space and matter changed in the this extraordinarily powerful event uh, in the very early universe. And we have really good evidence that that stuff actually happened. And I think that that was the first moment that I, that I really appreciated that this stuff isn't just hypothetical, you know, it's not just esoteric. It's, it's extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily, um, you know, uh, vast forces of nature. And we're, we're just, we're just a speck of dust in that, you know, we have no, we have no power over it. We have no influence. We have, we have a little bit of understanding and, and, you know, it's, it's just enough that we get to be scared, (laughs) But, but not enough that we can do anything about it.
1: When we come back from our break, Katie Mack tells me how the James Webb Space Telescope's astonishing images of the early universe may also give us new clues about the universe's ultimate demise. And we talk about how contemplating the end of everything can make us value even more what we have now. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's P A T R E O N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast paced world,
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Katie Mack. When this posts on the web, our conversation, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. web telescope's first images will have been up for a week Mm. or so. Yeah. Do you think you'll get any information that'll throw light on this from the web?
2: Um, I mean, I think the the web telescope is going to be extraordinarily powerful for Looking at some of the most distant and therefore earliest galaxies in the universe. So it's going to be able to see sort of entire populations of galaxies within the first. Few hundred million years of the cosmos, which is which is extraordinary. I mean, we currently have images of galaxies from within the first billion years of the universe, but we only we've only seen like the brightest ones. Whereas the the Webb telescope is going to see some of the ordinary population of galaxies at the time, which is which is really going to tell us like how galaxies formed in the early universe and how that that first buildup of of matter uh, happened. Um, it's going to tell us about. You know how dark matter was was affecting that that whole scene. I mean, that's part of what my research is about is about how dark matter affected the first galaxies in the universe. So it's going to be extraordinarily exciting for me to see what they what they find uh, looking at those very distant galaxies, and it'll help us to kind of understand the evolution of just the the buildup of matter in the universe over time by being able to look so far back and with so much detail. Uh, So it's really going to fill in a lot of the cosmic history that at the moment is kind of fuzzy for us. And because of that, it'll give us more insight into the structure in the universe, galaxies and clusters of galaxies and stars. And that will help us to better understand just how, how the evolution of the universe worked, which will inform in a somewhat less direct way how we understand the evolution of the universe into the future, so it's not going to you know answer yes or no to any of these scenarios, but it will it will fill in some of that uh, that timeline in a way that'll be really powerful for understanding just the contents and the and the history and the evolution of the cosmos.
1: I get the impression is this right that one of the things you get out of studying? The formation of the universe mm-hmm. is that you understand a little more, a little better. The very the world of the very small that we yeah. experience here on Earth.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's one of the most fascinating things about cosmology is that it. When you get into early universe cosmology, so studying the the first moments, uh, you're really Blurring uh, the blurring the lines between the study of the very largest things in the universe and the very smallest things in the universe, because as you go farther and ba- farther back in time cl- toward the Big Bang, you get to uh, processes where the universe was so energetic and so dense that the particle physics uh, was important uh, for the evolution of, of all of space, essentially, and so. You have to understand how the the particle physics worked, how subatomic physics worked, in order to understand the the sort of initial conditions for the entire universe. Because our entire observable universe was at some point contained in a tiny, tiny space uh, of very high density, uh, very high, you know, um, uh, energy. Where all of those all of those particle interactions, uh, the the sort of nature of particle physics, the the Higgs field, and all of that stuff was really really important to what was going on. And uh, so when
1: you say condensed into a tiny space, yeah, I, I've heard different estimates, like the size of an mm. apple or a p- tennis ball. Well, or...
2: yeah, it just kind of depends on how far back you go. So if you, I mean, I'm ta- so what I'm talking about specifically is the entire the observable universe is the region that we can see. With telescopes right now, essentially, and that's that's a, a sort of sphere around us of about forty-six billion light years in every direction, um, and that's that's just defining how far light can have traveled to us from the Big Bang. Right mm-hmm. so if 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 the light started at the big bang it's getting to us now and that's why when we look at, as far as we can look in every direction we see the the first light in the universe we see the cosmic microwave background which is really the glow of the big bang itself the the light from that time when the universe was hot and dense and full of plasma so all of the universe was in that hot dense state and uh and that observable universe that that huge region around us was condensed to uh, a much smaller region um you know on order of sort of meters of the time when it was still very hot and dense and and then if you go farther back in time than that uh, to when you know the the Higgs mechanism was going on when when all of the particle physics was changing and stuff then you're you're getting into tiny tiny regions and then if you go back to inflation if we think inflation happened where this this very rapid expansion happened then you're getting many many orders of magnitude of expansion in the first Tiny, tiny fraction of a second, and that means that the observable universe was like subatomic, at, at, you oh, know, in terms said, of just, like in terms really, of that.
1: Really small. It's so interesting that when we think about our own death, mm-hmm. we we try to think of it from the other side. What would it be like mm. not to feel anything, not to hear anything, or see anything? Mm-hmm. But if you can't experience anything, you can't experience anything. So Mm-mm. there is no, I mean, unless you believe you're going to meet your relatives in heaven, right. which many yeah. people do. Yeah. But th- the idea that when the universe ends, mm-hmm. it somehow involves us, which, yeah. which is odd because won't our sun have gobbled us up many oh, yeah. billions of years before the universe ends?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, the the Earth only has about a billion years before the sun boils away the oceans and makes makes it entirely uninhabitable and then, you know, falling into the sun is takes a little longer, but yeah, the Earth will be will be long gone by the time any of this stuff is is relevant. But still, you know, as you, as you said before, like people have feelings about this stuff. There's, you know, people get uh, emotionally invested in the existence of the universe and even even if you know, all of humanity will be over by the time any of this is relevant, it's still something that, that touches us on a visceral level. We like the idea of continuity. We like the idea of something outlasting us. And the, the possibility that, that everything could come to an end, that all of the memory of us, all of the impact that we had on even our tiny little piece of space could be just erased, is troubling.
1: In writing the book, I know you went around the world Talking to other cosmologists, mm-hmm. and they had feelings about it too, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. What were some of those reactions?
2: It, that was a really fascinating part of the book. I, you know, I, I, I went around talking to people mostly to get, you know, their impression about what the current research is telling us, what kinds of observations are most exciting, what experiments are going to do in the next few years. But every time I did an interview, I made sure to ask how does the end of the universe make you feel <laughs> because i really wanted to know like if this is what you'd spend your whole day doing like what's what's the emotional impact and and the answers were were really different you know i had some people said you know it's fine i think it's great we should just be a little blip you know that's that's perfect you know just we'll we'll be forgotten i appreciate that some people were just deeply troubled you know the idea that that you know that we don't go on forever is is a hard thing to accept, and some people found it really depressing, and and some people found it depressing to the point that they really preferred these ideas where there's some kind of cyclic uh, universe where something would persist. You know, even uh. if it's not specifically us, but some memory or some some tiny tiny sign that the universe ever existed. If 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 something carries on like that, makes us feel a little better. Um, and then, you know, and some people said, you know, this, I don't think about this. I'd, I, I worry about climate change. And that, that's, that's valid too. Uh, but there was a whole range of responses. It was not, uh, there was no agreement on, on what the end of the universe means on an emotional level.
1: It's interesting that we have an attachment to what we know. We, mm-hmm. we want our universe to not die because it's our universe. Yeah. Yeah. Like here. A couple of the, uh, or at least one of the main mm-hmm. ways that you've, you've outlined in the book, one of the main ways to end it all Mm -hmm. is parallel universes bonking Mm. into it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we we
1: don't have any affection for the uh, parallel universe (laughs) that's hitting us.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's one of the, one of the um, scenarios involves a cycling universe. And one of the models for a cycling universe involves kind of being collided with by, by the universe next door and that creating a new big bang. And, that model has been a little bit um, revised since then. You can have different ways that can happen that that don't involve crashing into another universe, but um, but the idea that there are other universes, either separated from us by another dimension or or just little pockets of space that are so far away from us that they could be they might as well be other universes, or that there might be a next universe, uh, it can sometimes be a little bit comforting too. I find uh, some of the people I talked to thought it was. It was a nice idea that, that even if our universe dies, something will come after it, or maybe some other universe carries on, even though ours uh, ends. So there, that might be some kind of hope.
1: It's so interesting that we can actively worry when we hear that there's going to be a death of the universe, mm-hmm. actively worry about the death of the universe when we don't really care much or think much about the human population past our grandchildren.
2: Yeah, yeah I think I mean, but I think that part of it is that we have we're in a bit of denial about the the total end of the existence of humanity as well, right? Like yeah. I think that I think part of it is that if if the universe doesn't last forever, then definitely humans don't either and And that's the the idea that our legacy stops at some point, I think is the part that's really troubling. I mean, when people think about their own death, I think a lot of the time people think, well you know, my children will live on or, you know, the, the book I wrote will live on or, or this impact I had on the community will, will be remembered. But the idea that actually at some point, no, none of that will be remembered. Everything you ever did will stop mattering because, you know, the universe is over. I think that's a much, much harder pill to swallow.
1: I, I, I think at least in my case, it everything I did will be over before the universe is. Well, but I, I don't mind that because I like... I like what the one cosmologist said to you that Mm -hmm. he liked the blipness of it. The Mm -hmm. fact that we're here, we do things, it happens, and then it just evaporates, goes away.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that 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 can be comforting in a sense or at least uh, can help put things in perspective in some sense because, like... There's because there's no recourse to you know some some final wrap up where everything makes sense at the end you know if if it's if it's all just going to end if there's no you know sort of perfect happy wrap up uh, you know conclusion where where it's like okay that was great this is you know this is what it all means then then we have to find meaning in in the moment you know we have to find meaning that doesn't rely on some future event we have to find a way to, to appreciate the, the life that we have while we have it and find meaning in the moment that, that's not connected to some external thing that may or may not happen.
1: I agree with you. I think I got that from performing, that mm. if you don't pay attention to what you're doing now mm-hmm. and all you care about is the legacy, right. you're not really doing it. Yeah. You're not really in it. Yeah. Life is what's happening now.
2: Exactly. Not right. what
1: happened yesterday or what might happen tomorrow. Yeah. And it's odd that you can come to that conclusion, thinking not just about your own passing, your own death, mm-hmm. but the death of the whole shebang.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, because because uh, you know you no longer you no longer have the uh, the the little loopholes like oh my kids will remember me or something like no <laughs> no they won't they'll be gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. You don't get to do that.
1: Who is the scientist who you who said to you the whole point is that you understand it and then you enjoy it and then mm. so long and thanks for all the fish.
2: <laughs> that was that was my colleague Renee Lazek at uh, at University of Toronto. I really I really appreciated her uh, her perspective on that.
1: We're reaching the end of our time. Okay. We, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. Roughly to do with communicating. Okay. Here's the first one. Mm-hmm. What do you wish you really understood?
2: Uh, um, I wish I had a intuitive understanding of different, sort of physical or or numerical scales. Like when I think of a million and then I think of a billion, in my mind it's like, okay, there's a million and then there's a billion and the billion's like about twice as big. And that's not true at all. (laughs) That's not how that works. Um, But like I can't visualize the transition between a million and a billion. Like that just doesn't work for my brain. And then I'm working with numbers like 10 to the 15, 10 to the 30. Like I wish I had like an actual physical intuition for for what those numbers mean, and, and I, I don't.
1: That, that's something we all could use more yeah. of, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: Ooh, that's tough. Um, we all get things wrong sometimes. Like, that's not something to be ashamed about. Like, we all have to learn something at some point because we didn't know it before that. Yeah. But, uh, but I try to, you know, give them some reason to to accept it other than just like believe me i'm the one who's right because that's not that's not very helpful
1: <laughs> great next question what's mm-hmm. the strangest question anyone has ever asked you
2: <laughs> i get a lot of questions about like you know, uh, variations on, you know, can we exploit dark energy? Can we eat dark matter? Like all of those kinds of, like people always ask, like, is there some way we can interact with this stuff in a way that would be exciting? And, uh, you know, probably not, but it's, it's fun to wonder.
1: Okay, next. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do do I need, do I need them? To, I mean, are they interesting? Because maybe I don't want them to stop. Maybe I should. Maybe I just want to listen. I think that's that's okay, okay right? That's
1: good. That's good. Let's say you're at a dinner table and you're next to someone you never met before. Mm-hmm. How do you strike up a genuine conversation?
2: Ooh. Um, Fortunately, I do have uh the kind of job where if i if I present it in the right way, people usually have some questions. you know everybody wants to know about black holes and about the big bang and about aliens. I get a lot of questions about aliens. I don't study aliens <laughs> at all, <laughs> but I get a lot of questions about them so um so there's always there's always somewhere to go from there i have I have that kind of easy
1: okay, next to last mm-hmm. what what gives you confidence
2: um I think that uh, the thing that gives me confidence the most in in this kind of realm is when I can explain something to someone and they say, you know, I've heard that so many times before and I never understood it until now. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, like, it's such a great feeling when somebody is no longer, has, has has no longer given up on their ability to understand a thing, you know, when they've they've said, oh, maybe I can understand it. Like, I, I love to, to see that happen.
1: Well, you certainly do it in your book. Thank you. Which leads us to the last question. Okay. What book changed your life?
2: Um, I think I'd probably have to say A Brief History of Time, because I remember when I was a kid, I, uh, probably I was about 10 years old when I picked up that book, and I didn't understand everything in it, um, but when I when I read that, I I really like. I just I was so fascinated that 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 we have these questions and that that we can know these bizarre things about the universe and we can actually learn more and study more by doing mathematics and looking at observations and. You know, and when I saw that that the the author of that book, Stephen Hawking, was called a cosmologist, I was like, okay, I want to be a cosmologist. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. <laughs> and so that kind of set me on my uh, my path toward uh, toward the work that I do now. And it was um, it was definitely a very influential thing.
1: Well, I have to thank Stephen Hawking for making you a cosmologist. <laughs> and giving me the chance to talk with you in this conversation. It was just wonderful.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for this and for the book. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Aldous Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Katie Mack is a theoretical cosmologist who holds the Hawking share in cosmology and science communication at the Perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics in Waterloo, Ontario. Her book is called The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Her website is astrokady.com and she has a lively Twitter account with a large following at Astro This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth oheney and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with my old friend, the character actor, Paul Dooley. He's now 94 and still making movies. Well, I've had an interesting life. I've done so many different kinds of things. I have tons and tons of credits, and I was going to mention to you that if I were a star instead of a character actor, you know, I could make a movie in eight weeks and maybe later I'd make another movie in eight weeks, but while someone else is making a real movie with lots of scenes because they have a leading role, I'm playing a one-day part or a two-day part, so I can do that all year long and be in six or eight movies. So I have tons of credits. Paul Dooley, who's played more dads on screen than even he can count, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.